Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. Can you please introduce yourselves and share a little bit about your roles at the University of Michigan? So my name is Larry Ahn. Uh, I'm an associate professor in general internal medicine, uh, and I'm a co-director of the Center for Health Communications Research, which is also a health communications uh, shared resource for the Rogel Cancer Center. I'm Ken Resnikow. I'm a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan. And at the Rogel Cancer Center, I'm the Associate Director for Community Outreach Engagement and Health Disparities Research. And I work closely with Larry at the Center for Health Communications Research. Dr. Resnikow, in what areas does your research focus? As a health communication specialist, I'm particularly interested in understanding the motivations, the drivers and the barriers behind behaviors. And in this case, COVID protective behaviors like mask wearing and uptake of the COVID-19 vaccine. And Dr. Ahn, where does your research focus? So a lot of the work we do in the cancer center is about trying to give patients and families the information they need to take the best care and be active participants in their own health and care. Uh, I think one of the challenges we face all the time, but especially during the pandemic, is people tend to be overwhelmed with information. Uh, so what we try to do is to find out what are the specific information needs of a patient or family member and try to put together, uh, so you can think of it a personalized information package for them uh, that addresses their specific needs. So that's what we, the, the broad theme of our work, uh, really with a big focus on sort of cancer prevention, helping cancer patients. But here we are living in the middle of a pandemic and uh, talk about information overload. Um, and so we've been trying to help address that issue um, with Ken. So recently you participated in a panel discussion with colleagues from USC, Yale, and Hollywood Health and Society about the impact of positive COVID-19 messaging on television. Can you explain the goal of that panel and share a little bit about your experience? Larry and I were introduced through some colleagues at the university to some folks based out in Hollywood, both uh, in academic settings, USC, and um, uh, consultants to Hollywood showrunners and scriptwriters. And one of the things we found quickly was that much of the uh, public service announcements and the portrayal of um, COVID-19 protective behaviors and discussions around vaccines were sort of defaulting to the usual suspects of fear and facts, increase people's severity and susceptibility, and effects scare them into doing these behaviors. We also found very early that there's a subgroup who is resistant to these behaviors, both mask wearing, social distancing, and more recently vaccine use. So this project is started to address how could we portray characters who may be resistant or hesitant to practice these behaviors or take the vaccine in existing television shows or possibly public service announcements or social media content how could we portray interactions that show the process of these initially resistant or hesitant people softening and with strategic um, injections of information and with empathetic listening 
by other characters show that people can change their minds and move towards um, accepting COVID-19 vaccine and adopting those behaviors. Yeah, so I think Ken summarized that really well in terms of our, our motivations and initiatives working with this Hollywood collaboration. I think that um, this is based on research that Ken and I have been doing since the beginning of the pandemic. We, I think as many members of the health and public health community uh, were concerned um, when what seemed like fairly straightforward recommendations uh, around mask wearing and social distancing, which we believe are very effective in limiting the spread of coronavirus and deaths due to the pandemic, that those um, seemingly common sense behaviors became politicized um, and a lot of um, social friction, let's just say, uh, evolved around the uh, adoption of those behaviors. And so we were initially puzzled by that, concerned about that. Uh, we've been doing national survey work trying to understand that a little bit more. And the focus on positive messaging came from some analysis that we did looking at social distancing and other protective behaviors where what we found interestingly is that uh, there was uh, a group, um, fairly large group in our sort of society that um, exhibits a psychological trait called reactance uh, that they tend to push back negatively when they feel like they're being told what to do uh, or if they feel if their rights or freedoms are being restricted. And I think that's probably pretty evident to people who are following the news in any way, shape or form. Uh, we found sort of strong evidence for that sort of psychological trait and showed that it interfered with adoption of uh, protective behaviors, whether that's social distancing or masking. Um, what we did find additionally is, um, as Ken was alluding to, you know, classic uh, interventions would try to uh, convince these people that COVID was dangerous uh, and a threat to their health and hopefully then uh, convince people to adopt these practices. We actually found very little association between people's perceived personal risk of COVID um, and their adoption of these behaviors, particularly in the case where people were reactant or tended to push back uh, against recommendations. The one thing we did find, which sort of started us down this path toward positive messaging and the uh, idea of promoting the protector role in society, um, is that when people said, uh, that they had concern for others, and these are close others, so it's friends or family. If people had concern for others, there was much less of this reactance type uh, behavior and much less rejection of um, COVID protective practices. So it's that it was sort of an interesting interplay uh, between sort of the research we were doing and then our collaboration, let's say a non-traditional collaboration with uh, our Hollywood colleagues uh, around how to message most effectively. The last thing I'll say now, and then we'll go on, is that there's actually a, a long and well-established history of this. Probably the most famous example is the concept of designated drivers. Um, and so um, when that concept was being introduced to society, one of the major ways it was done, I believe it was the president of NBC in collaboration with uh, academic researchers and, and advocacy groups like Mothers Against Drunk Driving decided that they would start featuring um, designated drivers as a social role and concept across their different shows, right? And what this showed was that um, the introduction of designated drivers into the public consciousness through entertainment media was a very important and effective strategy 
uh, in terms of encouraging that broader behavior. Uh, and there's other examples around some ideas around um, gay marriage and LGBTQ rights uh, that, for example, Will and Grace might have had some impact on uh, the broader acceptance uh, of some new notions uh, around social norms and behaviors. And so uh, it builds on that history uh, and we're trying to take that approach uh, to raise the, the profile of positive protective behaviors uh, around COVID and the pandemic. What impact do you think a television show can have on a person's decision regarding COVID-19 specifically? There are at least three or four very specific benefits that television or more broadly, um, the entire entertainment medium. So we wanna include things like YouTube videos, et cetera. So one is um, it can model effective communication, particularly how might you handle a relative or a friend or a coworker who is resistant or hesitant or has some beliefs that we might consider irrational or, or conspiratorial? How do you talk to them in an effective way? So we can model those interactions. Number two, by showing those individuals hopefully converting to accepting the vaccine, we could change norms. We could now increase the uh, perceived percent of people who the hesitant think are actually doing this behavior. And the higher that norm, usually the more likely people are to um, actually adopt the behavior. And third, we could use that vehicle to impart information. We could answer some of the top three or four questions. The vaccine was developed so quickly, is it safe? Can I get the virus from the vaccine? Are they just experimenting on us? So we can address those particular sticking points with educational responses woven into the scene, so to speak, or woven into the character interaction. I, I think the only thing I would add to that, and this is um, after conversations with our colleagues, particularly at the Hollywood Health and Society uh, group, is that um, when, when we do traditional sort of health education or, or people understand it's like, hey, I, people are trying to message me right now. Um, I think that puts up people's defenses and they tend to more naturally counter argue uh, against information they might receive. And that's very different when people are viewing sort of entertainment media and they're just seeing examples of these types of behaviors. So there tends to be, um, to the point that Ken was making about social norms, tends to be less resistance um, when some of the information is presented that way or when things are modeled more directly as opposed to, I'm gonna sit down and talk to you now about why you should wear a mask, right? Just seeing people wearing masks in different situations can have um, sometimes a, a bigger or a deeper influence on um, people's uh, underlying attitudes and beliefs and behaviors. Let me just add one more thing. Typically in, in public health and when health departments and CDC make ads, they're not necessarily gonna default to things like humor and sarcasm for, and for good reasons. But Hollywood is very skilled at that. So the idea that they could infuse perhaps some entertainment value, some you know, empathy with characters and some humor, those are things that help get the message across because people have defenses about some of the usual suspects. They've already heard a lot of these same facts or arguments but by adding things like humor and exaggeration and, and character interest, we might be able to enter these sort of unguarded doors um, that might open people up to being persuaded. 
So is there any way in particular that you think different shows and YouTube and other mediums, so they, they appeal to different audiences. So how, how can they tailor some of their messaging to help address the concerns that their particular viewers have? So that brings us to the topic of audience segmentation. We know that there are different barriers and drivers amongst some subgroups. So for example, African-Americans have some specific concerns about the vaccine that other groups have, but not as quite at the same rate. So for example, African-Americans are concerned the vaccine was created too quickly. They're concerned that perhaps they're being experimented on and they're wondering whether or not they should go first. Whereas other groups um, that often align with what's considered you know, the right politically are worried this is an infringement on their personal freedoms something Larry already talked about. So it, when shows know their demographics, and most of them do, they could tailor the message and the character interaction to their audience. So if a show had a particularly um, high percentage of African-American viewers, and there's several that do, then there are certain scenes or character interactions that they could do that address that audience's barriers, concerns, and drivers. Similarly, a show the right-leaning viewers there's a separate set of messages and characters that I think they could portray tailored to their audience. And I think the only thing I would add to that, and this is once again, reflecting the lessons we've been learning, interacting with our uh, colleagues in Hollywood, both at USC, but also those that are uh, directly involved in the production of uh, entertainment media is oftentimes uh, less is more, right? So it does not have to be a full storyline around why somebody decided to get vaccinated, but it could be something so simple as a, a brief um, conversation about somebody saying, I got vaccinated or saying, I scheduled my vaccination. Um, and so sometimes um, just small cues and modeling uh, can be as effective as uh, large drawn out storylines. And so the one thing that's probably worth mentioning is that we, we you know, particularly coming from the academic side are being uh, very careful about is, uh, we're not really in a position to tell a Hollywood screenwriter what sort of story they should write, right? Because they know what kind of stories they can write, and that's not really our role. What we can share with them and what they've found useful is uh, understanding some of these underlying um, issues around reactance, uh, understanding some of the, the ways in which they can make a difference, and for us to be sharing um, some of uh, what we've been hearing in our, from both our survey work but also focus groups around people that are trying to, to play this protector role for themselves and their family. So um, largely it's been uh, us sharing our, our research, uh, both quantitative and qualitative, and then leaving it to, to the creative juices of the, the creative people in Hollywood to think about how those best could be applied. And then, you know, if they have questions, we help sort of close the loop and answer those along the way. I just, if I can add a little personal anecdote, when we first started being a frustrated scriptwriter. Um, I provided our uh, Hollywood colleagues with specific dialogue and talking points. And uh, the consultant who's sort of connecting these two worlds said, Ken, don't do that. Do exactly what Larry just said. Give them some raw materials, give them some you know, conceptual ideas, uh, but let them write the characters. That's what they do well. And they know how to incorporate these facts and these nuances. So that was a very interesting initial adjustment we had to make that we have to sort of leave it up to them to take the raw material and to process entertainment out of it. 
but I enjoyed reading Ken's script, and I'm sure that there's probably one or two other people in the world that might as well. That's it. That two. That's good. Well, that leads me into my next question, which we might be able to, you know, use the script more broadly. I'm curious if there are any aspects of this that can be applied to everyday conversations and interactions that people are having with others. That's what drove this almost entire interaction was because there's some communication principles, I'll name a few in a second, that apply to health professionals talking to their patients as well as uh, relatives talking to their aunts and uncles. And one of the principles is this idea of rolling with the resistance or reflective listening. So if someone says the pharmaceutical industry is only doing this to make money and we can't trust them, in this technique called rolling with resistance, we teach health professionals and um, even lay people to reflect it back to the person. You're really worried that the pharmaceutical industry um, doesn't have your interest in part. And by reflecting back, you build empathy, you communicate, I'm not gonna argue with you, and you soften the ground for people being open to being persuaded. So yes, there's a series, and I'll let Larry fill in maybe some of the gaps of sort of evidence-based established communication techniques and principles that we already knew from our research um, that we think apply to how we'd want these characters, um, be they a, a doctor on a TV show, or again, just lay people, family members talking. I, I think I can say, because I work in healthcare, um, that oftentimes doctors are very good at providing information, but maybe a little bit less good about asking people uh, how much they already understand or what they might make of the new information they're provided. So uh, Ken is, is being very modest. He's really sort of an international expert in a technique called motivational interviewing, which says, don't just dump information on people, but rather um, elicit, right? Ask people what they already know, ask permission and then provide new information and then elicit their understanding of the new information. So instead of saying, let me tell you all the reasons why you should take the COVID vaccine, X, 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 Y, it would be, what have you heard so far about the COVID vaccine? There might be more information that uh, might be of interest to you. So if I, if okay, if I share that with you, and then what do you make of this new information? So it's turning um, sort of a one-way conversation into really a very uh, person-centered, human-centered, two-way conversation. And I think that's so important in terms of providing high-quality healthcare all the time, but especially when you're dealing with something like vaccine resistance. Um, but probably generally important everywhere, whether that's conversations with your doctor about uh, COVID, about cancer treatments, or conversations with your family about a whole range of different issues. I would just add, there's a couple other principles. Larry mentioned what we call licit, provide illicit. I mentioned reflective listening. Another core concept is sort of establishing autonomy that it's up to you. I can't push you, I can't persuade you. This is your choice, I get that. Is there anything I can do to help you make that choice? So it's sort of what some people have called shared decision-making or collaborative decision-making, but that's important, particularly with people high on that trait Larry mentioned of reactance. It's very important for them to feel autonomous in their decision. So recognizing that value of autonomy and volition in these conversations carries over from our research into this entertainment realm. So you both have shared so much information. If you had to boil it down to a few key takeaways for our listeners, what would they be? 
So I think in terms of the overall message is that um, it's important to sort of emphasize the importance of um, COVID protection, uh, whether that's uh, social distancing, masking, or deciding to get vaccinated. Yes, it benefits the individual, but it's especially important, I think, to emphasize uh, how it might benefit sort of the close others of that individual. So your direct family, your friends, are there people that you know that are higher risk of uh, serious illness or death from COVID? And you know you have an opportunity to be a protector for that individual. Um, I think that's uh, an important sort of message or strategy. Uh, but then to do that in a way, as Ken has been alluding to, that doesn't sort of lead to conflict, but starts with understanding where are people coming from, agreeing with people, um, because I think you know nobody's lived through a pandemic exactly like this before. Uh, so there are a lot of new things that are happening, and recognizing there's there's areas of uncertainty but we still have to make the best choices going forward. And doing that in a, a reflective and listening sort of way, I think is what we'd suggest. I wanna add something. So Larry, again, is being modest. This idea of the protector was largely his insight when he was sort of, I think, going over the data hour after hours, what does this tell us? And one of the powerful, I think, aspects of the protector idea is for the individual who feels they're not vulnerable, I don't need this. For me, this is crap, and um, it's a waste of my time. I'm not going to get sick. The protector approach allows that person to retain all of that and sort of gives them this external motive. We, I like to say an off-ramp for their ego to say, well, but I'll do it for grandma, or I'll do it for my local minister, or I'll do it for my kid's teacher. So the beauty is it doesn't have to threaten this entire system, which is very difficult to dismantle if you really believe this is about freedom and choice and your invulnerability and this is a conspiracy, to a large extent, we don't have to dismantle that very intricate um, structure. And instead we're giving them this very compelling sort of other domain to motivate them on, which is again, someone in your house who might be elder, someone you know who might be vulnerable. So I think there's a real brilliance to it. And I just wanna add one point, maybe it's just like being Captain Obvious, but in the case of herd immunity, even if only 20% of the US population is vaccine hesitant or what we call hard no, we need them. We need them even for our own health. We have to bring in as many people as we can um, to get to that 80, 85%. So it's critical that we can't just abandon these people and say, fine, if they wanna hurt themselves, that's up to them because it affects us. So this is a case of true collectivism. We have to all be, on the same page, you have to all be rowing together because it's going to take a lot more time and effort to get to herd immunity if 20% of the population is not going to take the vaccine. Is there anything else that either of you would like to share? So I, I would say I think that you know it's been a real pleasure working with Ken closely on these issues and I think we're excited about um, how we've had the opportunity to reach outside our, our normal traditional academic networks uh, to try to make a difference. I think that, you know, I've not spoken to people from HBO or NBC or Netflix. Um, I've not had my work presented to the people at Sesame Street before. So it's a little bit of an interesting experience. And I think um, like Ken, like many of us, we're just trying to do the best we can uh, and make a contribution during the pandemic. Well said, and in theory, this could be a model that would be used for other health concerns um, that I think 
has tremendous potential to sort of translate the science into real world messaging that people will be entertained by and also subtly influenced by. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.